is our first workshop episode where we discuss all things workshops, horror stories, um, ideas, solutions, problems, uh, anything that would come up in terms of kind of a creative writing um, pursuit, any type of I- any type of structure or any type of idea. And we got an email. We got our first email here, and they don't have a workshop horror story to share with us, but it is a listener that wrote in and wanted to say a few things uh, about uh, not just the podcast, but uh, the the creative writing world and specifically the workshop structure itself. So I'm going to read you uh, an excerpt I've asked uh, with permission from the listener. And we're going to go into a few ideas that they raise. I think this listener emailed in and they, they raised, I think, a good po- a couple good points for discussion when it comes to workshops. And I think a good jumping off point, especially in terms of broadening a discussion on workshops, that it's more than just individuals sitting in a room. It's, it's, there's a cultural issues, there are cultural benefits, there are the fact that universities have kind of a monopoly on it that has issues, you know, all these different things that can be discussed in the context of writing workshops. Let me get a sip of coffee here. And I'd like this, uh, listeners, if you have an idea about this, you hear something that makes you think, please write in about it. Again, send that into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. That's where you can reach me. And let's get into it. So let me read this. I'm going to go a little bit here. Listener wrote, I think there are some podcasts in the literary space that produce good content, or at least possess good interviews with authors who make for interesting guests. Still, there aren't any I'm aware of that are more informal and approachable for people outside of the literary world, aside from Heavy Board. Uh, thank you very much, listeners. Right. I appreciate that. It really is great to hear. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, the email continues... It's fun listening to different perspectives on books and authors removed from academic spaces. I have an MFA, and I'm pursuing a PhD right now, and I find that distance from workshop culture invaluable. And I have more to read about this, listeners, but I just wanted to talk about this section first. The listener writes in, academic spaces, where they they talk about academic spaces. What do we mean by academic spaces? I think what this listener is referring to is the fact that universities have a monopoly on the writing workshop. And that used to be great. That used to be a way to ensure that writers could make a living while still kind of being immersed in their field. But now it's become a hazard. And it's become a hazard where they call it any specific restaurant reference to what, what is called workshop culture, Right workshop culture what do we mean by that or what do you think listeners somebody would mean by workshop culture i think they mean there are rules right there are rules to what can be submitted to a workshop there are rules to what can be said in a workshop right there are sensibilities and of course this is the thing you're not allowed to say but it is all political sensibilities usually um dnc sensibilities as i've mentioned before Uh, where it seems that most art, even in workshops, it's actually even worse in workshops than it is if you go to like The New Yorker or something and you're looking at reviews or critics, where there's a strict adherence to an ideology and it kind of suffocates anything outside of that. So if you're trying to do something a little different, if you're trying to do something a little new, and you're going to an MFA or a PhD program and you're going to those workshops, there is an expected culture. That means that if you write something that you're a little nervous about or that 
goes to a certain place that people are uncomfortable with, you will get reamed out in the workshop. And that'll discourage you from wanting to write that piece, right? There are words that are off limits. Um, I've been in some of these workshops and it's just, I mean, I know everybody has. It, it's incredible. Um, I didn't have terrible things happen to me, although there were times where the workshop would get hijacked. For example, workshop culture right now, if you're a man and you write about basic male sexuality, i.e. finding uh, women attractive, sexually appealing, um, if a character has sexual fantasies about a female character in the book, um, you will be accused of perpetuating some type of patriarchal misogyny, right? Because you're writing about an honest um, thing that exists in the world. Straight men are attractive to women. That's just what it is, right? But that is one of the part of the workshop culture that if you turn in a poem or a book, poem or a story or, you know, a novel to a workshop, part of a novel, whatever, and you have some type of explicitly sexual material in there, and I mean explicitly sexual and I don't even mean it has to be like graphic pornography or anything like that. I just mean literally it has to be a male character either obsessing or um, even in love, right? Like, like if you have an obsessive male character in love with a female character, you will be taken to task according to a political ideology that permeates everything in the workshop. Uh, and this is reinforced. And again, this is kind of, it's kind of like Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent, right? These people don't understand that they're enforcing this kind of red guard Soviet style of art, but they are enforcing it. Um, it's kind of just like a self-selection process, right? If you look at jobs, hiring practices in the field, um, it's hostile to the canon. In fact, every creative writing job, uh, writing teacher job that I've looked at in the last five years specifies something about destroying the canon. They don't want to hire anybody that doesn't want to destroy the canon. So they want to undermine the authority of literature and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they basically, this is the kind of manufacturing consent uh, apparatus that Chomsky wrote about all those years ago. Uh, it's worth reading, listeners. So there is this idea of workshop culture. But I would like to know what you think about workshop culture. Because again, what I just talked about, uh, not very eloquently, I admit, is uh, one aspect of workshop culture. Uh, but there are more, right? There are more. And it'd be interesting to have this kind of series where we go in and discuss the different aspects of workshop culture or what somebody would call workshop culture. And I noticed this, I think it was uh, Lee Stein on Twitter, uh, everybody buy her books. She talked about how there's a difference between the creative writing industry and the publishing industry. She separates the two. And uh, I think that is also something that workshop culture doesn't understand, right? So creative writing industry, where workshop culture is a part of, it's an industry built on people that want to be writers and are willing to pay for it and go to school for it and all that. Uh, the publishing industry is almost entirely separated from that, although there are places where it overlaps. And I think that was a really poignant and correct point that Stein made, and she should get more credit for it, quite honestly. But, you know... If listeners have any ideas, write that in, heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. So I think there is this kind of separation. I would argue that most of the audience for any given book, collection of books, poems, anything like that, is not a part of this workshop culture. That this academic space, this kind of workshop culture, is so small. It is such an insular kind of... Um, 
incestual uh, group. It's so small. It's a very small world. And most of the people that are successful in that world are not the most widely published. Okay. So there is this clear disconnect between kind of what we would call academic spaces or workshop culture versus the real world, right? When we were trying to make money off these books, literally sell a story. Now people call that selling out, but that's not true. Everybody writing wants to be known for their writing. Okay. Anybody telling you otherwise is lying. The email goes on, uh, and this is where I wanted to specifically get into a few more details, right? Unfortunately, I don't have any workshop horror stories to share, but I do want to hear some. I find that subject fascinating, given that I've participated in and run so many by now. I feel like that, uh, I feel that there are issues, but the academic world is misdiagnosing them. I've witnessed a number of interviews for visiting assistant professor gigs, <clears throat> and every applicant has identical complaints about workshop structure. And they have in parentheses here, we need to value the workshops, boys. Uh, and basically provides the same non-solution to the issue, and act as if their non-solution was one they conjured up independently. It's so difficult because some workshops do go terribly. But I feel that that has way more to do with the composition of a particular workshop than the structure. Again, thank you for this email, listeners. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to point out here. When we talk about the composition of the workshop and kind of when, the, when a workshop goes south, a workshop goes south because of the workshop leader, the instructor, a lot of times the tenured professor that is leading the workshop. They are the sole authority in the workshop. And that's the bottom line. Now, this is all wrapped up into kind of workshop culture, academic spaces as well. But there is a kind of common thread in the pedagogy that is coming out of academia right now, particularly around writing instruction, uh, because most of it is an evidence base, by the way. But there's this continuing um, trend towards uh, what they call student-centered learning. And this is baked into the pedagogy. If you pick up any of the good, like the big pedagogy books written in the last, you know, 25 years, they're talking about this kind of made-up bullshit where they say it should be student-centered and not instructor-centered. That's not true for workshops. That's not true. Uh, I had a lot of instructors that would say things like, well, it's really about your peers in the class, but it isn't really about the peers in the class. I get what they're saying, that the peers in the class do most of the work of a workshop, but that is, I think, shrugging off the responsibility of an instructor in the room. The instructor is the law. The instructor stops something from going too terribly. The instructor stops people from berating another student. Although nowadays, I've heard many horror stories from friends, um, usually uh, in person at a bar when they tell me this, where the instructor joins in, joins in on uh, dogpiling somebody in the workshop because they turned in something that someone accused them of misogyny, they accused them of some ism, some social media swarm style instruction. So that's what that's becoming. Uh, so there's that. It's always up to the instructor. It's always up to the instructor. And there's this trend in pedagogy that wants to diminish instructors' expertise. There's a trend in hiring, as I previously discussed, that wants to completely eliminate the expertise of the entire field. They want to destroy the canon, the thing that has spent hundreds of years building, refining, adding, all this stuff. They want to destroy it, therefore undermining the authority of a professor of English, right? That's what they want to do. That is the stated goal. It is stated in the hiring practices. It is stated in the job descriptions. They want to hire you to undermine your own authority. 
And this is the case with the pedagogy. So an instructor would read a pedagogy book and the pedagogy book is instructing them to undermine their own, undermine their own authority in the classroom pretending that these amateurs sitting around the table who have all paid to be there in an MFA PhD program level, these people have been handpicked, usually by the instructor, right, to come sit around this table and work with this instructor. The instructor giving up their authority in that role will never benefit the workshop, will never help people achieve uh, what they're going for, what they're trying to do with their work. Like I said, I've heard stories where literally... The instructor will single out uh, people, uh, not anonymously, like by name, and just berate them in a struggle session so that a lot of workshops become struggle sessions, particularly, like I said, one example is if you're a man writing about uh, male sexuality. Uh, you will always be hit over the head with that bat. They will pull it out. Somebody will pull it out. Somebody who's, you know, 20-some years old, probably never had sex in their life, is going to tell you that you're misogynist, that you're not, um, that you're degrading women, reducing them to sexual objects, so you're not allowed to find women sexy, right? All of this. It is baked into the cake. Uh, and the instructor will usually allow it, which is a problem with the instructor. So there's that, right? That's one aspect of it. The other thing I'll talk about, and of course, this has to do with something that they would call the creative writing industry, there are dirt, because of the instructor, there are certain types of workshops. So I've heard about this from friends who were in <laughs> PhD level workshops, PhD level creative writing workshops. And what happens is the instructor is so lazy and doesn't want to do their job, so they have everybody come in and do cold reads. So you are not giving the poems ahead of time. And I don't know if this is happening in fiction workshops. Maybe a listener could write in and let me know if this is happening in fiction workshops where you're not giving the work a week, at least a week ahead of time to get the readings in and give it a couple reads, you know, go over it, try to be fair, try to help this person grow, try to help them make their work better. Um, what uh, a lot of lazy professors have chosen to do with poetry is to not do that at all, which means that we're not having a workshop, that they're not having an actual discussion. They are um, just, I guess, getting paid to show up to a room for a couple hours a week. And that's a disgrace, absolutely disgraceful. If you're a professor and you run your workshops this way, you shouldn't be a professor. You should lose your job. Uh, because you're not running a workshop. And I actually had a friend who's told me at a couple different institutions, I've had friends tell me about this um, style of workshop. I find it absolutely appalling. If you're coming in with nobody having read the poems prior to the day of workshop, and not only because they're bad students, that's not why they didn't read the poem, it's because that's what the instructor wants them to do. And instructors use the instructors that do this, this lazy kind of workshop routine, what they claim is that they're giving it a read that people would in a magazine. Nobody's going to read your poem more than once. Nobody's going to read your story more than once. So it only matters for that one read. And of course, that is completely fabricated. That's not what workshops are for. Workshops are for uh, honing the craft, understanding the mistakes, pointing out the mistakes. It isn't for people to read in a fucking literary magazine one time and set it aside, okay? That is the after effect that comes after the workshop process. But of course, these instructors all have tenure. 
of course. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going to say what universities they were from, but they were prestigious, huge R1 research institutions in the States, okay, that they're in. And the staff is literally a joke, a joke, just absolutely insane. So that's another issue in workshops, right? Just complete disregard for for the time it takes to write something like this. It's built into the course that people do not give you the time of day. And it's so appalling. It's so appalling that these people call themselves creative writing instructors. They're just lazy. They've lost it. You know, they're just enjoying tenure at this point. Or that's what they were taught to do because it's baked into the pedagogy, right? Um, And nobody cares. Nobody does anything. Nobody faces any consequences. I also, I've said this before in a few episodes that keep in mind, workshops have their place. I don't want to just be like shitting on workshops, especially if we're doing a series like this. I don't want to just be shitting on them. What I want is them to be better. I just, there's a place for them. There's a place for young amateur writers to come in and have uh, experts, which usually the only expert in the room is the instructor, by the way, Um, to go back to my first point. um, There is a way that workshops are designed to help people. They want to help young writers. They want to show you the different techniques. They want to help you work through them, learn the craft. Um, There is a place for writing workshops. But when we start getting to these very advanced levels, the MFA and PhD level, and we're still having these petty internet discussions occupy most of the time in the workshop, I just think that it's a failure of the instructor. Uh, and there's nobody else to blame it on. You could blame it on these large systemic things. You could blame it on whatever you want. But really, it's down to the authority figure in the room. And if the authority figure in the room is not um, taking that responsibility and using it carefully, um, if they're using it um, in a political way, that's a problem. But if they're using it um, to play favorites, that's usually another problem that happens in workshops, right? Um If they're using that authority to diminish the experience, like, for example, having cold reads on workshops, um, it's just not going to work. And when the listener wrote in and said, you know, some workshops do go terribly. And as I said, the reason they go terribly is usually because of the instructor not shutting it down or not refocusing it, not chiming in and saying, well, let's focus on the poem in front of us instead of, you know, the writer. You know, something that's very easy to say would get people to stop doing bullshit and attacking people, dogpiling, all that kind of shit. I witnessed so much of that, and I wasn't even in grad school that long ago, guys. I was in it before it got this bad, and it was so bad then. Like, okay, I'm going to tell you a story of my own. And honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to, my workshop experience in grad school was actually great. I had a great instructor. There were very few of these kind of bad workshops where things would go off the rails, and it was because my instructor and my mentor at that time really did make the effort to chime in if somebody was ad hominem, if somebody was going off the rails, trying to attack somebody for something else that wasn't on the page, right? Or try to extrapolate a big kind of internet snarky comment. Uh, my instructor, my, my mentor would step in and they would say, okay, where, right? Point to it. Show me on the page, make sure, you know, ensuring that what people were saying wasn't mean, ensuring that what people saying was actually the constructive feedback and criticism that is expected in a workshop, not this kind of petty kind of, you know, personal uh, social problems, right? There's a lot of kind of um, competition. There's a lot of um, 
jealousy, right? Professional and otherwise, uh, and these things. And a good instructor prevents a lot of that from derailing. But I did have a few times in uh, workshop experiences, and this was in grad school. I didn't really have many in undergrad, again, because I had a great workshop leader there too. But there were a few times I turned in this poem <clears throat> that I never ended up publishing, but maybe I will eventually. And it was very simple at the time. It was called Using Her Toothbrush. And what it was mainly about was the speaker of the poem uh, staying over, you know, a girl's place that they had just, you know, had sex or whatever it was. And, uh, and the speaker doesn't have a toothbrush <laughs> and has to use uh, the girl's toothbrush and not, um, not his own. And how the speaker kind of having this kind of germophobe reaction to it, like not wanting to do it, right? And it's called using her toothbrush. And I thought it was... It was supposed to be funny, but it was also supposed to make this point, right, about kind of um, anxiety over things like this. And that was the first workshop where a 24-year-old, you know, 23-year-old, if that, is calling me misogynist. I was told I was misogynist because I was reducing the woman in the poem to her toothbrush. As if I was reducing the woman's value to her toothbrush. But like again, one, it wasn't in the poem that way. It was um, a misreading of the work. And I did have a few people stand up for me in that workshop. But this was in my second year or so, I think. Maybe not. Where a few people stood up for me during the process. Where they said, well, I think that's a hyper-feminist reading of this. Like, it's not quite there. You have to stretch some things. kind of." And I was like, yeah, of course. Of course, it's a hyper-politicized reading because this person is scrolling the timeline all the time and then applying that timeline to this fucking workshop. And thank God I had a good instructor and other peers in the class that respected me that were willing to stand up for it because then it could have devolved very quickly into something, something like a dog pile. Uh, where you get socially ostracized even outside of the workshop for turning in this kind of what is supposedly a safe space where you can experiment, where you can make mistakes, but it's not anymore. That's one of the other problems about workshops right now. It is not a place where you, where most writers feel safe experimenting, trying new things. Um, it just is not allowed. Usually, as I said already, by, by the instructor. The instructor is hurting everyone else by enforcing this kind of ideological, usually based around DNC policy proposals, because they're not laws, right? They're not rules that you actually have to follow. They are using a rubric uh, about, well, this is how good people behave and speak, so therefore, you, if it doesn't adhere to this, you know, you're a monster type thing. And of course, that is always has to do with these kind of policy proposals from the DNC. Um, and everybody, when I hear that, when I say that, people are like, oh, well, you're some fucking, you know, Republican. No, I'm not. I'm really not, guys. Like, I'm not. I don't describe to any of the Republican bullshit. Uh, I'm just calling it like it is, okay? I'm just calling it like it is. That's what I see. I see one side um, using this kind of made-up set of rules to literally ruin your life or make you a social pariah in the MFA program, the PhD program, and I see instructors actually doing it too. So it's, it's really horrible at this point. You know, there's something else. There's something else that I'm thinking of now. And when you're in that level, when you're not just an undergrad anymore, when you're in the graduate level, the MFA, the PhD level for workshops, one nice thing about that is it depends on the instructor, it depends on the institution. There is, they treat you like a peer in a lot of ways. 
you know, you're drinking with these people, you're going to the parties, you're having them look at your work. Uh, they're not really showing you their work in progress. You know, it's not that type of relationship. Again, there's that authority barrier, right? The instructor is the authority figure. And being treated like a peer at that level is one thing. It feels nice. It feels good. But it also misunderstands the situation. Is that you're on your way to being a peer with an MFA instructor, a PhD instructor, or professor, right? You're on your way to that, but you're not quite at that level still. And there's this idea of... I don't know, kind of encouraging these kind of personal friendships. And I think sometimes there's, there's, there's a benefit to that, encouraging those types of friendships. There's also a negative aspect to that. When if you're too friendly, if you're, you know, it's like parents almost. If you're calling your parent by their first name, you know, maybe the relationship isn't quite what it would be in terms of the authority figure and the person that has to uh, follow the authority figure. So maybe there's that, a little bit of barrier. Um, I've known friends that had issues, especially male teachers, um, if you want to get a drink with your students. So let's say you have, um, you know, 10, 15 creative writing students, probably distributed among the, you know, men and women, probably 50, honestly, nowadays in MFAs and stuff, it's probably like, you know, 70, 30 women to men. Uh, but if you're an instructor, a teacher in a program like that, and you want to have your kind of one-on-one -on -one meetings to discuss, you want to invite them out to a drink, right? I've heard horror stories of perfectly innocent um, professors, uh, they will ask their students to come, oh, let's meet here and we'll discuss some stuff over drinks, over a coffee, whatever it is, um, if they're not on campus. And I, I've heard horror stories of female students complaining about that, if it's a male instructor, if he's gonna, if a male instructor is gonna ask a male student out to a bar, that's one thing, right, to discuss their stuff. If uh, a male instructor is asking a female student out to a bar, well, it's a very different situation, isn't it? Uh, and this is what I mean. So there's this kind of rules that people are very rigid about, very rigid about. And they're all coming from this political, not laws, not rules, but ideology. This kind of wishful policy list is what it comes from. And that's why I think it's so important to mention uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people that have had the same experience. So then, because a student complained, I've seen instructors just not able to have drinks with anyone, right? So that level of, of coming down, the barriers coming down, and you developing kind of a more personal friendship with an instructor or a mentor just can't happen anymore. It's not allowed. And it's not allowed not because it's not right or because it's not beneficial, but it's not allowed because of these made-up rules about gender politics, about sexism politics. Like, you can't just be a well-meaning person, so you so now nobody can have it, right? So what the story I heard was that instructor now doesn't ask anybody out for drinks because, of course, they got accused of being sexist because they felt uncomfortable asking the female students to go out to drinks because it automatically implies this kind of dynamic. And, you know, I think this is what the listener means when they're talking about workshop culture, right? And how a podcast like this can help us take a step back and say that, oh, that's one tiny aspect of not just the creative writing world, but the entire artistic world. And there are better things we can do with our time. There are, you know, we don't, there's, there's a place for it. 
but it isn't the tell-all end-all. In fact, it's actually very small. And everybody that's obsessed with that world, you're not going to get a job. Okay. Even people getting PhDs. I know this. Oh, maybe you won't. Maybe if you have a PhD and you got a job, please let me know. So I'm more informed on this. There will be no jobs for you. There is no job openings for creative writing instructors. Um, if you have a PhD, you will be ended up teaching composition and rhetoric the rest of your life. Uh, those are the only jobs available, by the way. And nobody buys these types of books. Less people are buying books, period, but they're really not buying these kinds of what they would call workshop culture or academic culture books. They're buying nonfiction. They're not buying creative poetry books. They're not buying experimental fiction books. They're not buying artistic kind of literary books. They always bought less. People always bought less literary books than, norm, than, than you know, poppy books and stuff like that. That's always been the case, yes. But now the overall sales for everything is down. And guess what? That size of the academic space, that size of the workshop culture is shrinking with it. And I just think don't bet everything on that. Take a look around. Broaden it, all right? Please broaden it. There's so much more out there. And I hope this wasn't all over the place. Uh, I really wanted to just do a little short podcast here to get the ball rolling where I wanted people to understand, you know, we're looking for workshop stories, like things that happened to you in a workshop, but we're also looking for like your thoughts on workshop, um, what you think's wrong with it, what you think's great about it. You know, like this doesn't have to be negative. I know a lot of times with social media, everything gets negative or it comes off negative shit. I find myself going into it too, where I'm just like, fuck that, you know, but then I look back and I'm like, why did I say that? Like, well, I don't really think that, you know, like, I, I, why did I say that? It was just, it was in the mood, right? You just kind of follow the crowd. There is some of that. And that's kind of unavoidable for most human beings. But yeah, I don't know. Again, my best advice usually is trust your gut. Trust your gut. Do not, if you believe, now, this isn't true for amateurs, right? Like if you're an amateur and you're just getting into this, that's one thing, you know, you don't know quite how to trust your gut yet? Okay, but when you're in the MFA level, when you're in that PhD level, and you've had training in this, and you've, and you've worked a bunch of poems, you've written a couple books that haven't been published, you've written the whole collections of poems that haven't been published, or maybe they fail, maybe they're bad. Shit, I did. Uh, and when you get to that level, there is a level of trusting the gut, right? That, that only you can create art you want to read and see. And to do that, you have to trust yourself. And I know, again, this is why I specify amateur versus kind of a more seasoned writer, because if you're an amateur, you do need this kind of uh, workshop structure to help you, you know, hold you accountable to the standards. But once you've had a little bit of that and you're in the MFA, PhD level, you do not need to do anything other than trust that stomach. Trust that gut. What's it saying to you? What did you visualize in your fucking head when you were writing it? Right? So if somebody's telling you something in a workshop, take it with a grain of salt. Because if you have that gut feeling, that gut, that vision that you're following, well, a workshop's only going to be so helpful. Now, it can still be helpful, right? It doesn't mean you don't, don't ignore workshops or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But I just mean, you know, it could be helpful to just trust yourself and not listen to what a bunch of crazy people that are too online or, you know, scrolling the timeline literally minutes before they sat down in class uh, are saying about it. Okay. So follow your gut, but that's it. Uh, I guess I've ranted a little too long. Hopefully this wasn't completely off, uh, un unable to follow. I'll try to, uh, clean it up.
make it more structured in the future. But send in these. If you have something like this, you have something to add, you have a workshop story you want to share with me, please send it into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com and I will get it and I'll ask permission usually. But if I don't, I'll probably keep it all anonymous, right? I'm not going to say names or anything like that. I don't want anybody to be put on the spot, especially through, you know, my fucking podcast. So uh, let me know. Send your workshop stories or your workshop thoughts into heavyboardpodcast at gmail.com. And this has been another edition of Heavy Board. Heavy Board. Heavy. I am heavy, heavy, heavy board. Sweats and the day sweats, pal. Pal, I do.